The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. To live in a godly manner, to live in a godly manner in their home, in the church, and in the world. There's a lot of things uh, that we could be doing, and God in his wisdom communicates through Paul to Titus, let's just focus on the fundamentals, try to master these as much as possible, and that will actually trickle over and influence so many other areas of life. So let's simplify life. And Paul does that by going through categories of people saying, if you are a Christian and you claim to know the Lord Jesus Christ personally, then the following should characterize your life. The following should be the passion of your heart. And he started with older men, and then he addressed uh, the older women, which we've done, and then today we are addressing the younger women to see what God has for younger women by purpose of living according to his will. Follow along with me to set the context as I read Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, leading up to the younger godly women. Paul tells Pastor Titus, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So we looked at older men, older women, and now we are looking at younger women and what God expects of them. If you have a hand out there and look at that, I provided an outline for you. What God expects of godly young women. Seven points. If you've been with us the last three weeks or so and you're an observant person, you might notice that, wow, the younger women have more to do than everybody else. That's not fair. Or at least, why is that? So we're going to address that. But that is true. There's more content there than for any of these other groups. By the way, these groups are broken down in terms of age. These are age demographics. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men. We'll get to them. And then after that, so these are seasons of life. Everybody in here is in a season of life. If you're 11 years old, you're in a season of life. You're an elementary student. You're in high school, you're in a season of life. There are things that pertain to you or go on in your life that don't go on in the life of a three-year-old. Or maybe you're in college. That's kind of a transitional time of life, post-college, and on and on. Older women, older men. So that's a reality. And so God is very practical, gracious, wants to meet our needs in every area of life, no matter where we are in the season of life. And so that's kind of the point of emphasis here. And we're looking at these points of uh, godly young women. Now, as I read through it, and if you were tuning in very carefully, I want to go over again of these seven characteristics, attributes, commands for younger women. Note, starting at verse 4, the older women are to be teaching the younger women, training the younger women, urging the younger women, encouraging, discipling. Those are all synonyms, beginning of verse 4. 
The older women need to have an ongoing active ministry in the church, in the Christian world of influencing younger women. Notice it's not the pastor's job or the elder's job to get down in the trenches of this very intimate hands-on ministry of training younger women. I can do that as a dad to many degrees and a certain extent at the home laying the foundation. So there is input, but there is a special ministry here that goes to a very deep and personal level that older women are to be providing for younger women in the Christian community. That's clear from this passage. But look at the content of what the younger men, younger women are being exhorted to be attentive to. First, the older women are to be encouraging, training, discipling, urging. Actually, this Greek word is very rare and unique. That's why there's all these different translations and there's really no way best smoothly to represent what the Greek word actually says because the Greek word literally is the older women are to help the younger women come to their senses or to live sensibly. That's the word. To do what? Well, I believe that there is an order of priority here. These aren't just kind of willy-nilly thrown out there. The younger women are to be emphasizing in their teaching ministry to the younger women, they are to love their husbands. Love their children. Be sensible, pure workers at home. To be kind. Being subject or submissive to their own husbands. Okay, out of the seven, four of those specifically deal with a young woman. It is assumed that she is married, she lives at home, and she has children. Well, why do I say that and make a point of that? Well, in Paul's day, that would have been true of the supermajority of the young women in his day. 2,000 years ago, it was just normal. It was understood. It had been universally true for 4,000 years up to Paul's time that young women of the age that he's talking about would be married, and if possible, by God's grace, they would have children. The reason that's important is that is not true or the norm in American culture today. As a matter of fact, we, we have people in our church, we might have people in our church who would think, well, I'm a young woman, but I'm not married and I don't have children. This passage does not apply to me. I would say, well, that is not true. This passage applies to those that it is intended to reach. And I want to help define that. We've had to do that in every category. What, who's, a, who's an old man? Who's an old woman? Who's a young woman? Who's a young man? And are there any other categories? And I would say absolutely there are. Because in this passage, notice it doesn't say, there's no command here to children. But Paul does give that command in Ephesians and Colossians. It's also given in Exodus. But that's not his priority. Here he's dealing with the older generation that are responsible for discipling up and laying the foundation of solid, stable churches in this relatively new Christian area on the island of Crete. And so he's dealing with uh, the adults category by category and season of life. And so he's dealing with the priority of the younger woman has to everything evolves seemingly around their home life and their role as mother and wife. Uh, and some, like I said, in our culture, that is not necessarily the case. As a matter of fact, here's some interesting statistics that I looked up. Some just came from the recent census that we filled out here in America. They do that about every 10 years. Husband, wife, this is recent, 2010. Husband, wife, married couples 
are the heads of only 48% of U.S. households. Heads of household, husband and wife, only 48%. That is the first time in the history of America that it has been less than 50%. That is a huge, significant cultural shift. took a long time to get there, and there are very specific reasons of how we got there. People are staying single longer, getting married later, having fewer children, if having children at all, after getting married here in America, having abortions, having more abortions than ever before. A majority of adults, although not getting married, they aren't staying abstinent physically either. In other words, they're engaging in the privileges of marriage without being married, physically speaking. That's why this supposed rate of divorce has stopped. Well, no, it hasn't. I mean, not really. Oh, fewer people are getting divorced. Well, it's about stable. Well, no, it's just that fewer people are getting married. That's the reality in our culture. Nearly 40% of women in the United States have never been married currently. 40%. Women, single. Uh, That's an all-time high. That's according to the uh, National Center for Health Statistics. About This is amazing. About 70% of couples are cohabitating, living together, indulging in and engaging the privileges of marriage, but not being married. 70% of couples in America are cohabitating before marriage, for at least for those who do get married. And that's according to a recent study from the University of Denver. And I began to think about, in my own mind, of people I personally knew. I started, I started running out of fingers of people that I knew who cohabitate, live together, are not married, and engage in the privileges of marriage. So it is true. Just look at television, you can see it's true. As a matter of fact... On television, I know some of you probably don't watch TV, and some of us do. But let me, for those of you that aren't watching television, here's what's going on. Uh, biblical marriage is maligned, made fun of. What do I mean by biblical marriage? Uh, a man, one man, one woman, married, committed before God with children for life. Just the basic biblical definition of marriage. I.e., um, the Cleaver family, for those of you old enough. Ward and June Cleaver. Now, see, people make fun of Saturday Night Live, they love to bash on the Cleavers, make fun of them. But actually, that's actually a biblical model of a marriage. A hardworking, committed, virtuous man committed for life to his wife and children. So that was what, the 1950s? Or Rob and Laura Petrie. On television, wonderful married couple committed together for life. Or uh, the Ingalls family, Charles and Carolyn. That's actually based on real people. Laura Ingalls novels. Godly man, virtuous wife, married, children, committed. Uh, that is not the case. As a matter of fact, it would be you are hard-pressed on television, regular TV shows, sitcoms, whatever, to even find a married couple that's a, actually a man and a woman 
who are committed to each other. That would be the exception. And sometimes when they are, they are portrayed as buffoons. The husband's an idiot. The wife makes fun of him all the time. Uh, Say Roseanne or whatever. And it's just an utter mockery. That's intentional. That's a satanic ploy behind the scenes, by the way. So biblical marriage is maligned, made fun of, ridiculed, mocked today in American society. By the way, all sexual intimacy on television is illegitimate, overly graphic, and outside the confines of marriage. Gone are the days of the scenarios that I just described to you that could be seen on TV 50 years ago. Uh, So the evidence for the demise of the family is everywhere. Our modern-day televisions, you know, instead of... uh, Little House on the Prairie, it's the new normal. The latest comedy, sitcom, TV show that's taken the country by storm. The new normal. This is normal now. This immorality is normal. It's, it's not a traditional family. It's an immoral, confounded relationship. But it's the new normal. Or sister wives. The new hot, it's not new, it's four years old, reality show where some man is married to four different women normalizing polygamy and perversity. And you know what? The American people, they're entertained by it. It's getting good ratings more and more each year. Directly undermining the sanctity of marriage as God has created. And oh, we need this reminder from, listen to this, Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13.4, I'll just read it. Uh, Hebrews 13.4, marriage is to be held in honor among all. Biblical marriage is to be held in honor among all. See, sometimes Christians say, well, um, we can't expect unbelievers to, you know, honor the basics. Like marriage and morality, that's baloney. Acts 17, God is calling all men everywhere to repent. And right here, God the Creator... Unbelievers know that marriage is constituted with one man and one woman because every culture, every religion, for 6,000 years, that has been the norm, regardless of religion. Because they understand natural revelation as God the Creator has communicated it. Hence this universally binding command in Hebrews 13, verse 4. This is not just for Christians, not just for the church. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. That means all of humanity. Oh, we can't talk about Proposition 8 and the definition of marriage in our churches. It's a political issue. No, it's not. It's a biblical issue. God defined marriage. God designed marriage. God maintains marriage. God protects marriage. Marriage is sacred. Marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship to His church eternally. It is not to be tampered with, redefined, effaced, because it directly undermines Jesus Christ Himself and His future for all eternity. So there is an all-out assault and attack on the institution of marriage, and there has been in this country since the 1960s, and they're making headway more and more. And Satan is enjoying this. But anyway, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So... Just we needed a reminder for the sacredness of family life of marriage as we look to these godly young women. So let's go back to the passage in Titus chapter 1. Like I said, uh, oh, and so this whole, the point that the emphasis that God is putting is on family life for young women is to remind us of how important and influential family life is. It really is. 
Think about it. The first thing, what is the first institution that God created? Was it the church? No. Was it the nation of Israel and his covenant with them? No. Was it the institution of government and the state? No. It was the family. It was marriage. So a godly marriage, godly family is foundational to the stability of everything else. Everything in society, every other institution. That's where it starts. That's why it's the first thing in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 through 3. And so that's why the home is emphasized and a young woman's influence in the home is so critical. It is so crucial. God has privileged young women, those who are married and with children, to have one of the most important influences in the home, in the church, in society itself. What a great privilege. And women of God are called to be stewards of that great gift. So it's a high and mighty privilege that God has entrusted to Women, women who are married, women who have children. Hence the emphasis on home life here and why it's so important. So let's go ahead and look at some of the details here. By the way, if you're, if you're not married and you don't have children, but you're a young woman, I can't, you know, five of these can still directly apply to you. And we'll see that as we go through. And in indirect ways, even the ones that are commanded to married women or women with children can be fulfilled in different ways in your life. So it is relevant. Oh, and I have to answer the question, what constitutes a young woman? Well, from the details of the passage, he says in verse 4, the younger women are to, okay, it's assumed that they're married. So they're of marrying age. So if you're a woman and you're of marrying age, or you are married and you have children, or you're of the age to have children, uh, then you are constituted as a young woman. You're in that category. So I would say if you are uh, young enough to be in, uh, dependent upon your parents still, if you're totally dependent upon your parents, so this might be true of some college students. Maybe you're a full-time college student and you're pretty much dependent upon your parents for everything and you're not married and you don't have children, you wouldn't fall into this category of younger women. You're, you're on the brink. You're almost there. You're in transition. You could be there very soon. You could be there next semester. Boy, that would be scary. But anyway, um, so you, we're on the precipice here of categories. So even if you are in college and you're dependent upon your parents for everything financially and whatever else, and you don't have a whole lot of independence financially and legally and everything else, you're in another category. That category is not addressed here, but in Ephesians and Colossians, and that's children. Well, I'm 21. I'm not a child. Yes, you are. You're acting like one right now. But anyway. Ephesians and Colossians, and so that that's a big category. That's from birth to twenty, whatever, eight. Maybe if you get married like when you're nineteen, like my good friend who's a pastor, he married off two sons a year ago, nineteen and twenty, both boys, married godly women. They're on their own. They're doing great. They are now independent. They're not in the young category or the uh, children category anymore. But if you're in the children's category, you're dependent upon your parents and you only have one thing to remember. All of us, older men, older women, younger women, younger men. Man, we got all these things. We got, okay, the women, they got seven things. And the younger men, we got about four or five things. And the older men, they got all these other things. And then children, it's easy on you. God just said one thing, and that is obey your parents. I will say that again. If you are a child, you have one thing to remember that is a priority before God. The only commandment explicitly given to you in the New Testament, obey your parents. Wow, even if I'm in high school, yes. Even if I'm 18, absolutely, and all the more. Even if I'm in college, if you're totally dependent upon your parents, yes, it's that simple. Obey your 
parents. And with that is honor. Honor and obey. The attitude and the action. That's it. That is your lot and calling in life before Almighty God. Until you become independent. Clear from Scripture. So let's go ahead and now, since we've clarified who the young women are, these are the independent ones. Whether they are single, whether they are married, and whether they have children or not, this applies to you. Let's go ahead and look at it. Number one, godly young women show love to their husbands. Priority number one, show love to their husbands. Uh, like I said, I, I believe these are in a specific order, a logical order. If you are married and you do have children, you're probably a busy woman. And especially if you have kids in school and whatever. Well, I mean, just your life is all over the place. It's probably one of the busiest times of life. So we do need a reminder of what the priorities are to simplify our life. But priority number one for you, if you are married, is to love your husband. You know what? Other than your relationship with God, loving your husband in a godly way comes before everything else. Now, to help me with this and to be practical and relevant and reminded and informed, as I was preparing for this, I was thinking, you know what? I'm going to interview or talk to or get some, glean some information from older godly women that I totally know and that I totally respect. And I want to ask them their opinion on this passage. I want to know what these older godly women that I know who I have seen successfully raise a godly family and their children are now married and they have godly grandchildren. I want to know what they have to say on the specifics of how this passage is fulfilled. Because we could just read it and it says, I mean, there's the command. Older women are to train the younger women to love their husbands. And I'm going, yippee! Because I'm a husband. But anyway. But the nagging question was, well, how do you do that? How How is a younger woman supposed to love her husband? Actually, I had two questions as I was doing my investigation. How do the older women actually teach and show the younger woman, women to do these things? And what does it mean? What do you tell the younger woman about how she is to love her husband? I mean, what do you tell her? What does that look like? What does it mean? And I got a snootful. And I was feverishly taking some notes and wrote things down. And I was like, man, this is good stuff. Very practical, very helpful from women who have been there, from women who do it, from husbands. These are from women who are married to men, and these men love their wives. So this is just a summary, a, a quick summary of things that I gleaned and wrote down from women who are older and what they emphasize in their discipleship relationships is they train younger women. Um, and I tried to summarize them into just basic points, and I, they were great. Uh, how do you train younger women to love husbands? This is from a woman who's been married almost 30 years, has raised godly children, has grandchildren now in a wonderful marriage with her husband, and she's involved regularly in an ongoing way with discipling younger women. Well, how do you train these younger women to do these things to love their husbands? She said, first, by example. That's how Jesus taught, first. So it's got to be by example. The best teachers do it by example. Also, she said, in the church community. It has to happen in the context of the church community because God is the one that designed marriage, and it has to be, there has to be special events for women provided where these things are taught and heard in a formal capacity. That's why here at GBF we have a women's ministry, and they're doing, they have 
They are providing special women's events. The theme in two months is hospitality, how to be a hospitable, godly woman. Every woman in this church should be flocking to that event or every opportunity you have. If you have opportunity to be, see it exemplified and modeled by other women in accordance with God's word. So she said, we teach by example. We teach through special events. We teach through regular ongoing small groups, whether it's a, a Bible study or just meeting with two or three other women on a regular basis as we interface, as we talk. Not whining and complaining, but talking about the things of God, confessing our sins to one another, praying for one another, looking and reading at the Word of God together. Edifying and encouraging one another in small groups where we can talk about very personal and intimate things. This is what she was telling me. This is what she does. She finds it very effective where women can let their guard down. Um, she also said, by example, through special events, regular small groups, through one-on-one discipling, one-on-one mentoring, where you can really go deep. And then she said, here's another very important one. I teach the younger women to love their husbands by having to correct and admonish them at times. Well, what do you mean by that, I asked. She said, well, just recently... Uh, one woman wife was maligning or talking about her husband in an inappropriate manner behind his back to me. And I shut her down and then pointed out from Scripture why that is wrong. That is undermining your husband. That is not loving your husband. So she thought the corrective element was basic to how older women train younger women to get them back on focus. Um, so those were pretty much how you can train. And then the second question I had was how what's the content of what you communicate to the younger women or actually how do they love? How do you teach a woman to love her husband? Now, the fact that this is a command from God tells me that young wives, young women do not by nature, naturally on a regular ongoing basis, as God requires, love their husband in a biblical manner. Did you know that? Well, no, I love my husband. Yeah, that's probably true but not to the ideal and with the regularity that God expects, which is perfection. And it is the love of Christ. And it is ongoing. It is continual. You don't do that. Husbands don't do it either. That's why uh, husbands are commanded to love their wives because they don't do it on a regular basis. And here wives are commanded to love their husbands because they don't do it on a regular basis. Why is that? Well, here's how we got in the predicament. Genesis chapter 3. We need to be reminded. Adam and Eve were created without sin. Adam and Eve were created perfect. God performed the first marriage. It was an awesome marriage until they both committed sin, fell into sin, and then God cursed them because of their disobedience. And a part of the curse was God cursed their marriage. Not only is your marriage cursed, every human marriage from this point on will also be cursed. Now, marriage is wedded bliss, but the curse is not good news. But salvation in Jesus Christ, truth from God's word, can help overcome the curse that God did on the original marriage. And the essence of the curse that God put on Adam and Eve's marriage, uh, as he was telling them in Genesis 3, God said to the woman, I'm going to uh, multiply, greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and pain you shall bring forth children. And that's kind of the curse physically on her when she's giving birth. And then there was a second part of the curse. Your lust, your desire will be for your husband. What is that? And, but he will rule over you. The curse was that you're going to have this ongoing insatiable desire to usurp the authority of your husband that belongs to him as the head of the home. What does that mean? What does that look like? That means there's going to be squabbling and fighting in marriage relationships and conflict. And that has been true for 6,000 years. And it will continue to be true until Jesus comes again. 
So that is the heart and the essence uh, of why in the New Testament it is very basic. If you are married, you need to be reminded you don't love the way God wants you to all the time. You don't do it to an ideal manner. Uh, all parties involved are sinners. You need God's grace. You need salvation. You need the indwelling Holy Spirit. You need prayer. You need the support of the Christian community. You need the Word of God to overcome and override this curse that is relentless, that affects the heart of marriage. As a result, young wives, priority number one, after loving God your Savior, is loving your husband. And you don't know how to do it to God's ideal. And you need to be taught and trained how to do it. And there should be older women who you can look to as examples to help you in light of Scripture. And so that was my question, and here's what I gleaned. Uh, the wives tell me, uh, they said, oh, this was a great point. I didn't think of this one. Point number one, young wives need to learn their husband. They said, reading books on marriage is great, and there's a lot of general principles, but your husband is unique. He is different. Uh, God's created him uniquely. He's a unique kind of sinner. There are things that set him off. There are certain virtues and strengths that he has that are unique. And you need to learn your husband. This is what she's telling me. And it will take a lifetime. Learn your husband. Uh, what does he like? What does he not like? What frustrates him? What blesses him? What builds him up? What encourages him? What satisfies him? These are questions being thrown at me for your consideration. Learn your husband. He is unique. Second point I got was your husband comes first. Your husband comes before your career. Your husband comes before your kids. Uh, Man and wife constitute a family in the traditional sense. Children, you don't need children to have a family in the traditional sense. We say that children are a blessed addition. They're a temporary blessing. They come in, they come out. But at the heart of the family is husband and wife. That's the nucleus of it. It needs to be maintained even when you have children. So uh, the wife needs to keep her husband the priority even as children are being added. Yes, you need to attend and be a faithful mommy, but you don't neglect your husband with the excuse that, well, I've got seven kids. No, you need to maintain the priority by God's grace. And with help, you can do it. Uh, so your husband comes first. Remind him of that. He needs to feel that he comes first. Uh, he's not to be neglected in light of uh, kids, work, career, church, self, ministry. Satisfy him first. We had a great discipler when we were younger. Married couple, Liz George, has written several books, Elizabeth George. And she, the thing that she just preached all the time was, by way of example to younger women, is when she gets up in the morning, one of the first things she does after she serves her hubby a cup of coffee, is she says, is there one thing I can do for you today, honey, to bless you? Just one thing. And it can be small or whatever. But she's made a, a pattern of her life. And it has indeed blessed her husband. It has a residual, I mean, it has a, an effect on him, too, to want to serve his wife. So it's just this blessed circle of wanting to bless each other. And when you get out of that circle, it's a catch-22 of how you undermine each other continually, feeling neglected. So your husband comes first. Another point that was given to me was don't overwhelm yourself with too many commitments outside the home, causing you to neglect wifely duties and priorities. Quote, uh, don't run yourself ragged with wrong priorities. Quote, expending your energy on everything else but your man. Simplify your life. Learn to say no. That was a good one. Uh, I was also told, make sure the young wife learns to protect her husband's reputation. That's Proverbs 31. Protect your husband's re reputation. Uh, how do you talk about him behind his back? How do you talk about him to your girlfriends? 
do you malign him, undermine him to your girlfriends or other company? She said, no, do not do that. Protect his reputation. That is actually one of the virtues of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Put a shield over your hubby. You're one with him. You hurt him, you hurt yourself. You bless him, you bless yourself. Um, Pray for him every day. Pray for your husband every day. Pray for God's grace in his life. Pray that he will uh, be blessed by God. Pray that God will use him. Thank God for him every day. Your hubby. It's not pray every day that God will change him. Fix this about him. Fix that about him. That's what we're supposed to pray for ourselves. Pray to God about God changing you, wife. Husband, you pray every day for your wife, thanking God for her. And then you pray every day about God fixing you. God, forgive me for this sin. God, make me more patient. God, make me a better husband. God... That's how we need to pray. And if you're both praying like that, wow, you could revolutionize your marriage because God answers prayer. He answers prayer that's prayed in his will. Pray every day. Real simple stuff, isn't it? Pray every day for your husband. Um, The last one. This is profound. It takes a courageous woman. It takes a rare woman to actually do this one. Very few women will actually do this. But if you do this, you do it regularly, honestly, you welcome the responses. Apparently, you will revolutionize your marriage. I mean, does that sound like good news? In a good way. You will have an awesome marriage. This is what I have been told. Specifically, by another one of the women that I highly admire, who I consider an incredibly godly woman who's been married for 30 plus years, basically told me this will revolutionize your marriage. Because earlier, another lady told me that you need to find out what your husband like, or do what uh, love your husband and uh, do what he likes. And I said, "Well, how do you know what he likes?" And she said, "Ask him." So the young women, wives, you need to ask your husband, "Honey, what do you like? Honey, how can I express love to you? Honey, what are the things that I do that most make you feel loved? Honey, what are the things that I do that uh, are not loving acts towards you?" And let him think about it. Let him pray about it. And apparently, some of the answers you might get back could be a surprise to you. Maybe some of the answers you won't like. Maybe some of the answers you won't want to do. But if you have the courage and the humility to do that with your husband and welcome that, and what he says is in keeping with God's word, apparently it will revolutionize your marriage and your friendship with him. Honey, what can I do more to love you? Honey, what can I refrain from that undermines my love for your, or you being felt loved by me? I thought, wow, how profound, how practical. But in my experience, talking to married couples, knowing married couples, doing a lot of counseling over the years of married couples, couples, this is very rare. Couples, it's very rare for couples to even communicate at this level. They're not vulnerable enough. They're not humble enough. They don't trust each other enough. And that's why this doesn't happen. This is a very rare thing, even though it is so simple. The scripture commands you as a young woman to love your husband. And do you have the courage to ask him, honey, what can I do to you and for you that will make you feel loved? Wow. Anyway, so it was very encouraging, edifying for me. And, you know, I'm not an older woman and I'm not a wife, but they were very helpful for me uh, just trying to make this practical for our younger women. So I really appreciated that. 
So godly women are to show love to their husbands. Let's go on to the next one. Godly women are to show love to their children. And by the way, uh, the verb of that is used in these first two points, it's a command. It is present tense, meaning it's ongoing and continual. It is to be a habit of your your lifestyle. You have a lifestyle of loving your husband. You have a lifestyle of loving your children. It is characteristic of you. That's why, and also I put show love because love is an action, first and foremost. Love does things. Show love to your uh, husband. Show love to your children. And they share the same verb here, so these are closely related. Uh, priority for you, young woman, that that's married, love your husband, love your children, and do it in that order. Loving husband, by the way, is put on the beginning of the verse as emphatic, the emphatic position. Love husband, love children. How do you love your children? Cherish them, pray for them every single day. Pray for God's grace upon them. Pray that they would come to know Jesus personally. Evangelize them. It's interesting when Paul, two times, gives the priorities of how we're parenting our children. He gives very few commands, and the first command he gives is a negative one. Parents, do not exasperate your children. Do not frustrate them. It's negative. Why? Because we're sinful. We've got to restrain our sin as we parent. We have to refrain from reacting. So there's the positive and the negative. We need to refrain from exasperating our children and then do all these other proactive things. Train them, love them. Here's a couple keys. Discipline them. That's an act of love, by the way. Discipline them. Verbally rebuke them. Chasten them when appropriate, according to the book of Proverbs. Here's another one that is huge, in my opinion. Parents, be affectionate to your children. Physically affectionate. From the time they are born, both mom and dad. Hugs, kisses, loving. When they're babies, when they're in elementary school, when they are in high school, even now. When they come in the house, they know one of the rules is, first thing you do if you see dad, he better be hugged. And it doesn't matter if you're a college student, a boy or a girl. You are hugging dad. You're telling me how much you love me and missed me and how good I am to you. And we squeeze. We've been doing that for 20 years. And it's a blessing. Verbally communicate your love to them as well. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Every chance you get. Love your children. So godly women are to continually show love to their husbands. Godly women are to continually show love to their children. Also, I mean, the same thing applies. Look for a mentor. Look for uh, modeling and examples and getting older women in your life helping you parent. You need help to parent in a godly manner. We all need help. Uh, Let's go to number three. After godly women are to show love to their children, godly young women are to control their thoughts. Simply, younger women are taught to be sensible. Some translations say discreet. Some say self-controlled. What, when it says self-controlled, it's talking about self-control of your thought life. Some young women struggle with their thought life and can be carried away by their circumstances or their emotions. So I have been told. Going back to that Elizabeth George book where she gives her biography. That was true of her as a young woman. And she realized, wow, I've got to rein in my thought life. It is, it's dominating my life. It's killing me. I've got to subject my thought life to God's will. Hence, Philippians 4. You want peace of mind and the peace of God in your life. You need to reign in your thinking, young women. And the most important thing is you need to think on truth. Think things that are true. 
and the rest of that list. But that is the most important one. Think on things that are... Not thinking on suspicious things of the latest gossip you heard or suspected. Not thinking on things that are emotional. Not thinking of things that could happen or might happen or you think somebody else might do. That is so common. That is so dangerous. That is so damaging. I read a devotional this week about people who struggle with depression. Um, and the devotional was great because it said a lot of people diagnose depression or anxiety in particular. Anxiety, have an anxious mind. Sometimes that's diagnosed as thinking too much. It's not thinking about too much. It's thinking on the wrong thing. Think on things that are true. And Elizabeth George said when she practiced that discipline and made it a habit of her life, it changed her life. She was thinking on Scripture, the will of God, and was able to rein in her emotions, and she was not too, too, tossed to and fro by the circumstances of life because we cannot control the circumstances of life. So therein lies stability. Loving God with all your mind, as Jesus called us to do. Uh, so godly women are to be trained by older women, are reminded by them to control. The th- That's like the example that that older woman of God gave me this week where she gave me the example. I disciple groups of women. I also disciple several women one-on-one. And recently, I had to address one of these women because they had wrong thinking about their husband. And she had to correct the thinking, to think on truth. That's true discipleship. That's awesome. So godly young women are to control their thoughts. Uh, practical ways, um, do you memorize Scripture as a habit of life? Great discipline. Boy, did you know that if you're concentrating, thinking about, and memorizing and rehearsing Scripture in your mind, you can't think about anything else? You can't think about the latest gossip. You can't think about an untruth. You can't think about suspicion. You can't think about fear of the future while you're doing that because your mind is focused on one thing. I know you women are multitaskers, but I bet you can't do it. Because you've got to be fully engaged as you're thinking about Scripture. Another way to rein in your thoughts is to turn all your anxieties into a prayer list. Just everything that you're concerned and worried and fearing in life, write it down on a piece of paper and literally and pray to God about it. That's what the verse says in Philippians 4. God, cast all your anxieties on Him. God, I can't handle these. God, you take care of them. And you know what? He's going to give you a peace of mind and of heart as He promised to do. Okay, uh, number four, godly young women are to be morally pure. Morally chaste. That's hard to do in this culture, at least if you're, you know, the influence is everywhere to the very opposite. Morally pure. I think this starts with modesty. A mindset of modesty, a thought life of modesty, and how you flesh that on your life, how you express it physically in your life as a woman of God, whether you're a young woman of God, whether you're an elementary girl, junior high, high school girl, college girl, young married, and so on, uh, I think it's best summarized as being a modest woman in all areas of life. Modesty. That's reflected in so many ways. It's reflected in how you dress. That's a huge thing in our culture. How do you dress? Do you dress in such a way that the first thing you're thinking of, will God be pleased with me today? I want to worship the Almighty God with my very life, everything I do, Everything I wear, my entire wardrobe, I submit to you, God. I'm reminded of 1 Timothy 2. This is a priority for godly women. Uh, it says, the Apostle Paul speaking on behalf of the Spirit of God says, I want women, I want women, younger women, to adorn themselves or to clothe themselves with proper clothing. Proper clothing. What is that? Modestly. Modestly and discreetly. There's a relative component to that of defining that. 
but there is a way to dress modestly and discreetly before God and also thinking of your fellow humanity and how they look at you. I guess the simplest way to say it, you're not being modest if you're dressing in such a way as you just simply want to attract attention to yourself. That's idolatry. That's self-serving idolatry, right? What do people think of me? How do, now, I should say if you're married and you're thinking about your husband that way, that's a good thing. That's legitimate. Am I attractive to my husband? That's totally legitimate. But if it's anybody else other than what does God think of me, that can be idolatry. So I guess I just summarize is, is that always striving for modesty in everything, every area of your life, how you talk, your speech, how you conduct yourself, and how you dress. That pleases God. That's a reflection of the heart. And our heart is to be pursuing moral purity as a woman of God. And if you're asking what is moral purity, okay, the antithesis would be Madonna, Britney Spears, and a whole host of other Hollywood popular people. And have a huge influence on young women and our culture for bad, sadly. So godly young women are to be morally pure. And moms, older moms, it starts with you. You've got to be deliberately teaching your children, your daughters, when they're young, of what is appropriate, what is modest. You develop habits for them. Their identity isn't in their clothing or their word or what people think. Their identity is in their love they get from you as parents and the love from Jesus, the Savior, if they know him and God, their creator. Then they have stability in life. That's a beautiful thing, a great virtue. Okay, number five, godly young women make home life the priority. Going back to Titus. Uh, Paul says to be workers at home, present tense, workers. Actually, this is just one word in the Greek, worker at home. This is kind of your lot. This is uh, Grand Central Station or headquarters or home base for you is your home. If you're married, you have children. That's your base of operations. Greatest example is Proverbs 31, uh, the virtuous woman. She was uh, an incredibly godly woman who loved God. Her family respected her. Her husband adored her. Her children uh, praised her. She was productive. She brought an in income from outside the home. She did go outside the home, but the base of operations and the priority definitely was her home. So you want an illustration that is vivid, graphic, and attends to every area of life of a, a woman's life. Read Proverbs 31 again, 10 through and following, and it's a great visual reminder. But home life needs to be the priority. By the way, in the 1960s, and even a little before that, uh, a direct assault and attack on women being caretakers and queens of the home was uh, launched by satan himself in our culture through all kinds of various means whether it was the government hollywood liberal media uh, secular education all these venues at the same time just undermining god's plan for the woman to be at home where she should be proud that she can be at home and she doesn't have to feel embarrassed what do you do for a career well i'm a wife and a mother oh i feel sorry for you how boring or how insignificant is that when actually, wow, that's like the highest calling in the universe to be privileged to be a wife and a mother. Wow. The influence that a woman of God can have like that. Amazing. But, our, you know, our culture has done a, a very aggressive job for five decades and making major headway. And Satan is rejoicing over this whole thing of undermining the importance of home life. 
I know what I felt like when I was growing up. We had 10 kids in our family. Anytime my mom, my dad could be gone seven days a week. And not that I didn't care, but life went on and life was stable. If my mom was gone, she went on a two-day vacation once every seven years with her sister. I'd flip out. When's mom coming? I could not handle that. I was totally insecure. I didn't realize it at the time, but very uneasy, very insecure. Where is mommy? And by the way, my mom worked part-time my entire life growing up. But she always arranged her schedule around that she would be home when I got home from school, and she was there when I needed her. And she was there to make dinner and all those other wonderful things. Godly young women need to make home life the priority. Mommies need to be teaching their daughters that from the time they are born. That is God's design. And by the way, there are people all the way from uh, Whoopi Goldberg to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a Supreme Court justice, who have gone on record, continue to go on record, uh, explicitly, dogmatically condemning uh, the traditional home life of husband, wife at home, and they are proposing that we deconstruct and literally demolish the biblical standard of what home life was and what a marriage and a family are. It's horrible. Number six, godly young women are to be kind. I mean, not much I could wax eloquent about that. I mean, if you're a young one, just be kind. How do you talk to your children? If you're raising your voice, if you're yelling, that is not kind. If you're insulting them, that is not kind. If you're raising your voice at your husband, that is not kind. If you're accusing him falsely, that is not kind. If you're talking about him behind his back, that is not kind. Do you have sweet speech? Being a kind person comes with a sweet demeanor. What's your reputation? Oh, she's a nag. She's a crank. Or she's just a, she's a sweet woman. Can I use the word nice? I don't like the word nice, but it's one of our English words. Being kind, just being a nice person, a sweet person, pleasant, considerate, an endearing person, a calming person. Wow. In the home with all the frenzy and chaos going on, are you a, the calming influence or are you stirring up the pot with your words, actions, and with your mouth? So be kind. This, this pleases God. This is one of the virtues of love, being kind. Actually, kind is, and by the way, it's not just being passive. It's not refraining from being unkind. That's not kindness. Being kind is proactive. Being kind is deliberate. Being kind is being proactive. And actually, it's used as a verb in 1 Corinthians 13. It's an action. Being kind is an act. You are going out of your way consciously, deliberately to bless somebody else whether it's an encouraging word to your hubby, something kind to your children, that's the will of God. Are you a kind person? Younger godly women are called to be just that. And then finally, let's go to number seven. Rounding out this commitment and priority of home life, godly young women are purposefully to submit to their husbands. They purposefully submit to their husbands. Uh, Young women need to be subject to their own husbands. Young women need to be encouraged and reminded to do that and how to do that by older women and others in keeping with the will of God. It doesn't mean do everything your husband tells you to do. At least that's not how it works at our house, in our marriage. There are things I need to hear from my wife. I either need to be held accountable, rebuked, uh, or just given more information, Consider more information, need to change my mind, here are the Bennett, blah, blah, blah. Value the input of my wife. Sometimes I don't value it even when I need to hear it. 
That's, that's not submission. It's just do everything your husband tells you to do. It's, it's modeled in Scripture very clearly. Submitting to your husband as the church is to submit to Christ. It's an attitude. It's from the heart. You need God's help to do this. You need to pray continually every day. God, give me a submissive heart to my husband. There's a great prayer to pray every single day. Holy Spirit, help me be to submissive in a respectful and honoring way to my husband in a way that will bless him and please you, God. Pray that every day for three weeks. If you're a Christian, see what happens. If you are married. God will answer that prayer. God will, again, he'll revolutionize your marriage. By the way, it's this command here, the verb is in middle voice. I mean, it's your volition. It is your responsibility. It is your choice to do it, wife. You can't be passive. It's an act of the will. It's welcoming this role that God has given you in life. And you know what? God will bless you for it. Your husband will bless you for it as well. And again, this is connected directly with the gospel as a Christian. Why should you be submissive uh, to your husband? Well, my husband doesn't deserve it. Or my husband's a sinner. Well, that's true of all husbands. So you're not excluded. You are to be submissive to your husband because it's God's design. God commanded it of you. Uh, it's the obedient thing to do. There will be blessings in your life, and it also has an impact on others. Being submissive to your husband is a direct reflection of the eternal reality by which you are a living metaphor of Christ's relationship with his church, and his church is to be submissive to Christ, and in heaven the church will perfectly be submissive to Christ. For all eternity it will be a beautiful thing. Your marriage is to reflect that reality. And then at the end of the verse there in chapter 2 of Titus, the end of verse 5, Wives, do all these things. If you don't do all these things, you're going to malign or blaspheme the Word of God for people watching your life. Unbelievers who are watching. Your neighbors, your relatives. People who are watching what kind of wife you are. What kind of mother you are. Is your life and your words consistent with your profession to know Jesus? If the answer is yes, then you are adorning the Word of God, making it more attractive to the unbeliever. In terms of by way of conviction or by way of evangelism. That's what he says. Do all these things in order that the word of God will not be dishonored. He's not just saying the Bible generically. He is talking thematically throughout the entire book of Titus, the gospel and its impact to unbelievers who are watching your life individually, corporately, your family life. So that's actually a tool of evangelism. It's how you conduct yourself in your home as a godly, virtuous woman of God who loves Jesus Christ and wants to live according to His will. And you know what? God will bless that. People will start asking you questions if they haven't already. Wow, your marriage is different. You guys have been married 15 years. You guys have been married 20 years. You guys, uh, there's something different about you. What is it? I mean, literally, people might start asking those questions. And then, boom, you launch into the gospel. It has nothing to do with me or how great uh, my husband is. It is all about Jesus Christ and what He has done for us individually and for our marriage and our family. Let me tell you the good news. And you know what? God will do that. He'll use that and start saving souls. And with that, let's go ahead and pray to the fathers. We have the opportunity to partake in communion today. And thanks for tuning in. And if you're a young lady, take these things to heart, asking for God's help, seeking that older mentor or mentors in your life of older godly women. And then the rest of us in the church, we need to pray for our younger women, that they would pursue this. And our older women, that they would fulfill their mandate of discipling all for god's glory father we do thank you for our time together the opportunity to look at titus just amazed lord of how practical 
your word is. Scripture that was written 2,000 years ago, it's not out of date. It's not irrelevant. It speaks to exactly where we are today in very specific ways. God, we need your help. We, we need your grace. This, these are a high and holy calling for all of us of what you expect of us. We can't do it on our own. Jesus, you yourself said the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. God, we can only do this through salvation, being born again, having the indwelling spirit of God help us, prayer, the Christian community around us. So, God, we pray that you be gracious and merciful Sustain us, help us, help us to continue to grow. God also, supernaturally, miraculously, help us start seeing amazing things change in our personal lives, in our marriages, and in our families. And when we do, God, may we remember to give you the praise and the glory for it because it is all of you we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.